Hello, I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. For this episode of GDP, the Global Development Primer podcast, we're delighted to have Charles Kenny join us. Charles is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, and his current work focuses on global economic prospects, gender and development, and development finance. He's the author of the books, The Plague Cycle, The uh, Unending War Between Humanity and Infectious Disease, Getting Better, Why Global Development is Succeeding, the Upside of Down, Why the Rise of the Rest is Good for the West, and Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Utility, Happiness in Philosophical and Economic Thought. He's been contributing editor at Foreign Policy Magazine and a regular contributor to Business Week Magazine. Charles Kenny was previously at the World Bank, where his assignments included coordinating work on governance and anti-corruption in infrastructure and natural resources, and managing a number of investment and technical assistant projects covering telecommunications and the internet. And for this episode, we are very happy to have Charles Kenny join us to perhaps look into some crystal balls, or at least foggy crystal balls, to talk about how the world will look by 2050. Charles, welcome to GDP. Thanks very much for having me on. It's a it's a real pleasure, and uh, you've just come out with uh, with a new report that um, I, uh, I I believe takes a deep dive and looks at the um, what what the state of development would be like by 2050. It's um, uh, the scenarios for future global growth to 2050, which was published by the uh, the the Center for uh, for Global Development. So could you give us just a, a snapshot of what was included in that document? Sure. I think you put it very well when you said foggy crystal balls. Um, it's it's hard to predict growth um, and I certainly don't want to claim that uh, we have the answer. What we tried to do was come up with a way of forecasting growth using past things uh, that that were associated with faster or slower growth that we can predict into the future and then put sort of error bars around that prediction to say, well, you know, we think it's probably going to end up about here, but let's be honest, we don't know between here and here in in terms of economic growth and see what that would allow us to say about the shape of the world in 2050. So what we looked at was things like demographic trends. So, you know, the proportion of the population that's working age, the proportion that's of retirement age, the, the, the proportion of young people. We looked at education rates. We looked at global temperature and, and country average temperature. Uh, we looked at these variables that we think we can predict with some degree of accuracy, um, and their past relationship with growth and use that to, to, to forecast growth going forward. And then, as I say, um, the error bars around such a prediction are large. So we sort of came up with scenarios. You know, what happens if, if Africa grows at the top end of the range in some of these, uh, in, in this forecast? What happens if, if, if the United States or Europe grows at the bottom end, so on and so forth, to try and sort of map out not one prediction for the future, but but a range of plausible predictions for the future. So 
in those plausible predictions, I mean, is, is there some good news attached to this in, in, in any way? Uh, I mean, I know that as we, uh, we tend to, to look at the daily headlines and as we teach classes on, on global, uh, global development, uh, there's sometimes this, this ever-present dark cloud that just makes us think, oh man, does the world ever get better? But I mean, by 2050, could we see any big changes? For example, like low-income countries, what would be possible for, for them in terms of these measurements that you're looking at? So our forecasts, especially the central forecasts, are, are quite optimistic uh, for uh, low and lower uh, middle-income countries in particular. Um, that's because uh, those countries are sort of entering the part of, of the demographic transition, of, the, of a transition from high fertility, young populations with, with high mortality rates to low fertility, slightly older populations uh, uh, with lower mortality rates. They're entering that transition. And when you enter that transition, more of your uh, population is of a working age. And that's you know usually good for economic growth, not always, but usually good for economic growth. They've seen uh, the rollout of education on a sort of scale and speed that you know, pretty much we haven't seen historically before. Um, and we've seen over the last 30 years convergence. So poorer countries growing faster than richer countries. And there's no particular reason to think that would change. So you put all of those things together, you get sort of reasonably optimistic forecasts uh, for uh, poorer countries, for low and uh, lower middle income countries in particular. Um, for Africa, uh, the continent as a whole, for example, we're sort of predicting that maybe it will be 70, 80 percent richer. And, you know, even under rather uh, pessimistic scenarios, it'll still likely be considerably richer than it is today. For India, uh, the, the sort of central forecast is, is, is a doubling or more. So there is, uh, for, for, for developing countries, I think, um, good news. And what that suggests is it's plausible far from certain, but plausible, that the world could be pretty much free of $2.15 poverty, uh, extreme poverty as set by the World Bank, by 2050. Now, you know, again, plausible, by no means certain, depends on, uh, you know, what policies we follow in, in developing countries, what policies we see the rich world following, you know, a huge number of things could, could go could go wrong and, and, and that could not happen. I should also point out the sustainable development goals call for us to achieve that kind of poverty eradication by 2030. So, you know, sort of 20 years behind the SDG target. But still, you know, if you're looking for potential good news, I think, you know, there it is. Yeah, and I think that's a great point that, you know, we're looking at, the the definitions like the strict definitions of what is meant by uh by by low-income countries and if, if that dollar amount is is something that will be a thing of the past you know we we've seen that in the past where where you know extreme poverty numbers um that were even two decades ago that doesn't exist right most most uh, anymore to the level that it did it countries have been able to to pull themselves uh up and and as a result like you get basically more income GDP level, even just measuring at that index, um, into what were traditionally poorer places. And uh, the, the benefits follow. But would it be fair to say, though, that if low-income countries sort of disappear as a, as a cohort, would, would they be replaced by something else? I mean, does this sort of spell the, the end of development by 2050? Oh, by no, by no means at all. I mean, it will be... If it happens, it'll be uh, uh, sort of the end of, of, of 
two centuries of amazing progress that, you know, we will have gone from 75% maybe of the world living on, on less than $2.15 a day to pretty much nobody. Um, but $2.15 a day, I mean, it's not nearly enough for a good quality of life, right? I mean, you know, yeah. imagine living on it. Um, uh, it it's by no means guarantees you've got enough income for for, for basic health services. It in no way guarantees you've got enough money for you know indoor plumbing, uh, for example, or, or a decent amount of uh, electricity to you know light and cook and so on. So, um, two dollars fifteen is meant to be a very bare bones poverty line. People living on two dollars sixteen are not nearly rich enough. You know that's still yeah. maybe somewhere between an eighth and a tenth of of, of the poverty rate in, in in rich countries. So it is a it would be a milestone if we meet it, um, and it would be a sign of global progress. But by no means does it mean you know that sort of the battle is won and we can all we can all give up worrying about development. Yeah, I, I remember thinking back, if we can roll the clock back to, say, the 1990s when uh, Bangladesh uh, was was really, uh, you know, in the early part of the 1990s, still an agrarian country, and then in come the, the sweatshops, as it were. And and on the books, that, that did elevate, you know, the dollars per day from a dollar a day to closer to $2, if, if not more. But it also meant more people living in urban areas and, uh, you know, women especially, uh, taking on new new working roles that were, uh, you know, long days in, in, in factory settings. And, and what was very striking about that is that as sort of the, the, the basic dollar value rose, uh, so did debt. Right. There was a lot of there was a lot of, uh, you know, debt that came from new new rents and, and having to, to borrow even just a little just to just to make ends meet to to get on to the next stage. So you're right. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of murky water around those uh, those development indicators, which is definitely something to think about. Absolutely. I mean, my sort of preferred if you want one number for 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 what counts as a decent quality of life and in, in a way I, I think that's a bit of a mugs game but uh the number i choose is 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 close to ten dollars um now we will see considerable progress um uh, on on ten dollar poverty as well you know plausibly again not not likely not by any means certainly but but, but plausibly half the world will be living on more than ten dollars a day uh, by 2050, but that leaves the other half of the world, many of whom will be living much closer to, to $2.15. So, um, you know, a hugely long way to go in terms of income, and income is only one measure of the quality of life. Uh, you know, in this paper, we don't look at health outcomes. We don't look at uh, um, uh, uh, equality, you know, gender equality, or indeed um, income equality within countries. Um, there are, you know, huge a number of other elements of the quality of life that, that, that are only at best partially, if at all, caught, uh, caught by income. And we've got a long way to go on those measures too. And that's to say nothing about sustainability, uh, which is, of course, another considerable global challenge we have to face. Well, sustainability is a great point to bring up. And I know there's a lot of scholars who work in the fields of sustainability who talk about global growth maybe needing to slow down a bit. Uh, is that something that's coming up in the, the 2050 uh, projections as well? Where, where, is, where is global growth going to go? Steady, slow, quicker? 
Well, the, the, the good news for people who, who believe that uh, is that um, the forecasts that we have for the U- US, Europe and other rich countries are you know, of, of slower growth. Um, our sort of uh, our mid-range forecast is for US GDP to be Thirty percent higher than today, uh, which is you know considerably slower growth um, than we've seen in the past. Uh, for the EU, it's sort of twenty percent. Now, I think those mid-range forecasts may be too pessimistic, and I'm actually happy about that. Um, uh, I do think it's really important that we move on to a, a more sustainable uh, global growth path. But I think the way we do that is not by slowing economic growth. It is by decoupling. It's by making sure that um, economic growth doesn't lead um, to greater environmental damage. Now, we're already you know, seeing that. We, we, we appear globally to be quite close to, to peak greenhouse gas emissions. That's not enough. We need to see those greenhouse gas emissions drop really fast. And you know, uh, that's going to take some work. But uh, you know, my, my sort of preferred outcome would be um, that we are too pessimistic about rich country growth. And it continues faster. And frankly, the reason for that is because of my concern for developing countries. That historically, when rich countries have seen very slow growth rates, they've turned inwards. Um, you saw it during the Great Depression. They raised tariff rates. You saw, you know, uh, growing anti-migrant sentiment. You saw, you know, growing racism. Um, and I'd hate to see a repeat of that because. I think there's a huge opportunity for the planet here because of the shapes of, of demographics for closer uh, integration between richer and poorer countries. In particular, richer countries, one of the reasons we're, we're predicting these slow growth rates is because richer countries are seeing their, their working age populations decline in absolute numbers. This is, you know, we haven't seen anything like this since the Black Death, pretty much. You know, you have to go way back in history to see a long-term um, likelihood of lower working age populations um, in these countries. And there's a simple answer to that, which is to bring in people from elsewhere. Meanwhile, you've got um, regions like Africa that are still seeing uh, rising numbers of working age populations, but frankly, are struggling to find good jobs for all of them. Um, So you've got You've got a whole bunch of workers in one place who are having difficulty finding jobs and a whole a bunch of, of you know, rich countries where there aren't enough people to fill the jobs we have. And it seems to me like, you know, if rich countries can avoid that turn inwards and instead, um, you know, create opportunities for, for people from developing countries to come on a much larger scale, uh, you know, to, 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 to work in rich countries, that could be a win for uh, developing countries for rich countries and, and and the world as a whole. So that's that's the way I hope we go. But again, there's certainly no certainty in that. Well, exactly. I mean, I, I think that the the way you're, you're framing this is is that there's there's a lot of silver linings and opportunities ahead, but we also get these unpredictable shocks that just show up, like pandemics or wars that are breaking out in, in in Europe right now like things that we can't really get a sense of of predicting and that do tend to to put economies and and global trade and even global migration into into a shock response and that that sometimes throws us off the off the mark a little bit I would assume absolutely um, and and that's why uh, Anybody who's doing forecasts like this, you know, it's back to your murky crystal ball. Uh, there are there are no certainties, and the range of plausible outcomes is really large. 
and it it ranges from you know not terribly positive to to really quite positive uh and you know i i hope that the the world's policymakers help push us towards the more positive outcome yeah now while still trying to find some some positivity here uh you know let's let's talk about the climate impacts i mean that's something that before the pandemic i'm thinking back to the, the huge street protests that were going on in pretty much every city, uh, the student-led strikes, all of this that were, you know, demanding to say that, you know, we're, we, we need climate action now because we're facing imminent crisis. Uh, there are some countries, uh, like I'm thinking about uh, Kiribati, that is saying, well, it's too late for us. We are already planning our out-migration strategy, buying land in Fiji, making immigration deals with Australia and New Zealand, for example. Is this going to come crumbling down by 2050, or do we still have some some wiggle room to to make sure that we we adapt with uh, with humanity? At the global level, to 2050, and only looking in, at the impact of temperature, and there are a bunch of other impacts of climate beyond temperature. I'd say the economic impact globally is going to be small. Now, let me throw 48 caveats at that. Um, that misses, again, a large part of the impact. Um, you know, we, we will be seeing rising sea levels by that point, um, for, for example. Um, so, you know, there are impacts missed on those grounds. Two, the big impact of climate isn't sort of at the undifferentiated global level, it's in particular countries at particular times. I mean, you mentioned you yeah. know, small island states. That's an obvious one. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, also, um, if you look at the Sahel region of Africa, it's going to be far more affected by temperature change um, than, than other parts of the world. You know, Canada may even benefit, for example. So I think looking at the global level gives you one picture, but misses out a huge amount. Um, and you know, particularly with climate. Climate is going to be, um, you were mentioning the importance of shocks earlier on, climate is going to be a driver of more shocks um, with, with all of the suffering uh, and, uh, and sort of broader impacts that those shocks can bring. So I don't mean to, to downplay the role of climate. I think you know, it's, it's an urgent issue we have to deal with. Um, I, I would say that um, one of the things that we forecast in the paper is the share of low-income countries in uh, electricity consumption in 2050. Optimistically, if they grow really fast, they'll be responsible for like 2 or 3% of global electricity consumption in 2050. Low-income countries are not the problem when it comes to climate change. It is us rich folks who are the problem. And we shouldn't be um, sort of delaying their development or taking away development finance from them in order to you know, fund climate mitigation elsewhere uh, or uh, in order to you know, attempt to slow down their contribution to climate change. They are not responsible for this problem. They will not be responsible for this problem in 2050. They need more uh, access to energy and electricity. Nothing should get in the way of that. This is a problem for rich countries who caused it to fix and that's that's a fantastic point. I mean, and on that, you know, how many jurisdictions in rich countries are still 
you know, fueling their, their, their electricity grid. And I do mean fueling with fuel, with, with, with coal and diesel. I mean, there's a, a, you know, for all the hydroelectricity in a country like Canada, we're still, you know, quite, uh, quite dependent in many jurisdictions on carbon-based electricity production. And they're, what, what is it? It's a staggering number, like over, over 80, 80% of, of electricity energy used uh, is still, uh, based on carbon, and and if ever there's an indication where there's a need to reduce that, that seems to be a pretty good area to look at. I, I absolutely agree. One of the sort of most stunning part, bits of hypocrisy I've seen recently has been the last couple of years when uh, rich countries have um, started, you know, um, reopening coal mines using way more dirty coal. Uh, to uh, uh, fuel power plants, desperately buying up gas from all over the world in response to the you know Ukraine crisis and and and, and lower gas supplies from Russia. Um, at the same time, they are still at the World Bank telling poor countries, no, you can't borrow to build a gas power plant. You know, bad for the climate. You can't borrow um, to um, open up new gas fields. It's bad for the climate. You know, it is obscene hypocrisy. And I do think that it's time for that to end and for rich countries to act first and fastest on climate because, again, they largely created the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And and right now, I mean, the, the, the alternative technologies that are only beginning to make marginal, marginal gains into to markets in the north, I mean, they're still a fair ways off in, in, in poorer countries. And it's, well, you know, here's a... Here's a diesel electric plant. Here's a coal powered plant. That's what we got, and uh, that just doesn't seem to be uh, a good enough solution in that way. Right, and 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 one of the things about renewable power is that uh, the upfront up costs are a, a higher part of the complete cost of sort of electricity from renewables, and and that means high interest rates make uh, renewable power more expensive. Rich countries have risen interest rates. That's made interest rates go up worldwide. It's made renewable power less affordable in, in low-income countries. You know, yet again, the actions of rich countries are, are making sort of the response to climate uh, more complex for, for poorer countries. You know, I, yeah. I, I really think there's a, a, a moral responsibility here for much larger uh, uh, you know, rich country response on this and in particular, as I say, sort of leading by cutting their own emissions first. Yeah. Charles Kenny, you've, you've given us a lot to think about here. And uh, if, if people do want to, to check out your report, it is available at the Center for Global Development. Uh, I, I'm looking at ideas to action. Charles Kenny is a senior fellow uh, with CGD, uh, who's, who's just part of the uh, one of the authors of this of this paper looking at uh, predictions of development by 2050, and I think the real nail on the head here is that this this forecasting, you know, may paint that global picture, but the the regional and the local pictures uh, may have uh, their own artistic interpretations that will deviate from that bigger picture by the end of it. Absolutely. John, thank you very much for joining us on GDP. It's been a pleasure to talk to you uh, talk to you today. Thanks very much for having me on.